Hello, kitties, and welcome to another episode of the Abbey Normal Podcast. I'm your host, Colin Bourne. And I'm Mr. Toad. <laughs> That's how I sound right now. Yeah? Yeah. Well, we do sound dead, so... But we're back. Yeah, we missed an episode last week. It feels like five episodes I missed. We got sick last week, which yeah. is why I sound like crap. Yeah, but you it's okay. Colin keeps coughing. But it's okay, because I'm be. feeling a lot better than I ever did. Mm-hmm. You know? Except for it's all right here in the lungs, so... But that's not going to stop us from doing an episode today, so... Thankfully, it wasn't COVID. We got the flu, but yep. we're feeling better day by day. Yep. Anyway, we always said we were going to do this ranking video with Guillermo del Toro's Cabinet of Curiosity special that's premiered on Netflix now. It's been over a month. I feel like it's a good enough time... To talk about it and to review it and rank each short. It's not like we're going to spoil anything for anyone. Well, we so are yeah. majorly spoiling. So if you haven't watched already, go ahead and watch. But I will say I actually enjoyed this anthology that he made. It I've took a- us a long time to get through. Yeah. Very long time. Yeah, and we weren't sick when this came out. But after a while, we were getting more sick. And for me, I don't really like to watch a lot of loud things or intense things while I'm sick. I like to watch wholesome stuff, and that's why I was kind of glad that the holiday season was coming. So I had a lot of time on my hands to watch a lot of holiday stuff. Yeah, so we watched all the holiday specials on... Well, there's still more, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's more still, but we watched a lot of holiday specials. We mm. watched... I watched a lot of 80s fantasy. Yeah. Uh, Yesterday we watched Don't Worry Darling for the first time. It was a too bad as I thought it'd be. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't horrific. It was more of like a psychological thriller, really. Yeah. But what did you think? You thought it was really good. Well, yeah, it had like a. It gave me like mm-hmm. Stepford Wives type of vibes. Yeah, which is definitely what the movie was kind of going for. Yeah. I remember <clears> you <throat> were saying it was going for Stepford Wives and Get Out. It was really interesting. I was not expecting it to be, spoiler alert, uh, simulation based. Because essentially what's happening is Victory, the Victory Project, is really a simulation world. So the town of Victory is a simulation. And Alice's boyfriend, Jack, in real life, is just her boyfriend. He's They're not married. She's no. a surgeon. He's not working. He's just sad. And he he's miserable. Mm. Like, out of the two of them, he was the most miserable in their reality, which is the fact that he has no job, but he has to work in order to make money to provide for both of them. Uh-huh. And while he's not working, she's picking up all these extra hours just to be able to make ends meet. And it's causing her to spend less time with him, be less happier. And he just thinks that they would be better off in a simulation world, which is very, very scary. That's a scary boyfriend. I think we'll do a more deeper dive review over it in the coming weeks. But I think overall it was pretty interesting. Yes, it was. You want to get into the cabinet curiosities now? Yeah, let's get into that. All right. Yeah, there's about eight episodes. So it's all under Guillermo del Toro's influence, obviously, because like it's it's titled Guillermo del Toro's Cabinet Curiosities. So didn't a lot of them have like a lot the, of like H.P. Lovecraft influence, especially with the creatures? A lot of these short stories are loosely based off of Lovecraftian stories, which I'll get into when we get into more of the writing and stuff. But obviously, Guillermo del Toro curated. A group of directors to direct these shorts all inspired by either his own writings or other people's writings and they're all very very interesting i'd say uh-huh. so we'll i think what we'll do is we'll go through each one of them and then we'll talk about it and then on our list we'll 
give a ranking as to where they stand. Each of us have our own rankings. One is from best, ten is to least. Or not ten, there's eight. Well, I already know my number one, so... Well, we'll get there when we get there. Number one is Lot 36. It's directed by Guillermo Navarro, written by Regina Carrado and Guillermo del Toro. It's based on one of del Toro's short stories. And it stars Tim Blake Nelson, Sebastian Rauch, or Rauch, Rock. I can't remember. I try my best. Demetrius Gross and Elpedia Carrillo. When synopsis goes, xenophobic right-wing veteran Nick purchases the rights to an abandoned storage room lot. He refuses Mexican immigrant Amelia's pleas to let her recover her familial belongings from her lot, which was mistakenly sold to him. Cruelly, leaving her nothing but an old broken padlock, he acquires a lot belonging to a deceased old man. Desperate for funds, he searches a lot for items to sell until he finds a German seance table and three volumes on demon summonings. An interested buyer, Roland, urges him to find the fourth volume, which would be worth $300,000 altogether. The two search the room, finding a secret passage leading to a chamber which contains a dormant demon, summoned and sealed into the desiccated body of the old man's long-missing sister, Dottie Wolmar. Finding the fourth volume and ignoring Roland's warnings of the supernatural, Nick goes to retrieve it but breaks the seal, keeping the demon contained and emerges a writhing, tentacled mass and consumes Roland and chases Nick through the dark storage warehouse. Finding a locked door and Amelia outside, Nick Nick begs for her to open the door, but she locks him with the padlock, leaving him to try and evade the demon, but he is caught and consumed by the monster. Let's talk about this. Okay. So, this guy here, basically, he just owes money. Mm Mm-hmm. To the people, and basically he buys this out so he can get some money that'd be worth all that. But do you really think he could find anything in that storage that'd be worth what he owes? Have you seen the show Storage Wars? Uh, tons of times, yes. But I just felt like in his situation, really, it didn't look like he could find anything. I feel like this was a case of Storage Wars <laughs> gone wrong. Yeah. You buy these storage units that are filled with these people's belongings and personal possessions. Not really quite knowing what you're going to get into when you actually go through and look at these things because i've seen the show storage words too a lot of people find a lot of weird shit Mm. and one of the things that they thought was even weirder was the the storage unit manager he looks back at all the footage of the storage unit from weeks and months and it's the same old man who had previously owned the unit going there every day doing these weird little like ritualistic quirks like the jumping he does like these like weird little things before he opens and closes the storage unit and nobody ever really knows what he does when he goes in there every day but now we know it's to feed and appease the monster that's hidden behind the unit and it was definitely interesting it wasn't my top favorite but it was it was definitely a good intense one to start with yeah, I mean, they really build up these characters to kind of make you either love them or hate them. So, like, in this one, we don't quite feel for Nick because he's a hard-ass, right-wing conservative who doesn't care about people. He only cares about making a profit. And to the point where he not only doesn't allow this woman to go in to retrieve her familial possessions, but he also kind of insults her because at one point she does speak Spanish yeah. and he calls her out for Yeah, and it just that. doesn't seem like, right to do that. You know? It really is rude when people do shit like that. I used to work with 
people who would speak other languages and I would have employers who were really standoffish about that kind of thing. And it's like, that's that is what they do. Like people speak different languages, you know, like that's how they communicate with each yeah, other. That's just how they are. Yeah, exactly. Like that's nothing <laughs> to scold them for. And so right off the bat, we're not exactly in love with the guy, Nick. You know that he goes through like financial issues. He has a lot of debts to owe. He has loan sharks who are out to get him and he's got to try to make money by buying these storage units finding something of value to resell for a lot more than what he He goes into the storage unit and he finds out that this guy has like some like nazi memorabilia yeah because as he's searching through this stuff he finds a lot of weird things like he finds the seance table he finds this old wreath looking decorative piece doesn't quite know what it is but he thinks it's worth a lot of money yeah. And he throws out all of the stuff that he deems is unworthy and then goes through all of the valuables. He goes through the furniture, he goes through cabinets, he goes through boxes and chests. He finds old, like you said, like old photo books, memorabilia, trinkets, stuff like that. But the things that he thinks are most valuable is the table and the wreath. So talking with the manager of the storage unit, he provides him with this contact who's an elderly woman who specializes in strange antiques. So she appraises some of the items. She tells him about the wreath and that it's made of human hair. It's an old decorative piece that she said like is from Germany, things like that. And so is the seance table. They find the volumes. She calls up Roland, says to him, I think you, there's something here you'd be of interest in. So he comes over and he tells Nick the whole spiel. Like these are all volumes on how to summon, bind, deal, and end transactions with demons. So he says as a collection, all four volumes would be worth an insane amount of money and that he would buy the whole collection from Nick if they found the fourth volume. So Nick takes Roland back and he, you know, continued their search and Roland tells Nick more about the family who used to own the storage unit. Apparently they had this long-standing history. The old man had a sister that went missing back in the 20s, never found her, didn't ever, never knew what happened to her. Come to find out, her body has been used to for this demon to possess and inhabit the entire time that she's been missing. It's very, very scary. So where would you rank this on a scale of one to eight? Uh, one one being the best, eight being the worst. Seven. Okay. Lot thirty six. It's a piece of shit. I thought this one was pretty good. I thought it was very interesting. It really told a lot in a short amount of time. I believe this one was like 36 minutes long. So it wasn't really like a whole lot of time to like unpack, but it still told a lot in 36 minutes. I feel like what I was looking for for (coughs) the series was something that would really jump out at me, you know, scare me. Yeah. Um, Like physically and mentally. I mean, maybe not physically because it can't really physically hurt you or scare you, but mentally I was looking for something within the show that would be mentally scary. And there was something, but we'll get to that later. But for right now, this wasn't really for me mentally scary. Okay. So I would put this at number three. It was good, but it wasn't that (laughs) high up. I think it was really interesting. And when you do watch these shorts you do see a lot of del toro's influences in terms of creatures the, the creatures the way they they look and all this stuff like it was all very very interesting so number two is called graveyard rats it was directed by vincenzo natali also written by vincenzo natali and based on a short story by henry cutner and it stars david hewlett julian richings and nabil l 
Kafif. I believe is his name. I'm I apologize if I mispronounce these names. Well, that's okay. That's why we call you the butcher. The story goes, Masan is a grave robber in desperate need of funds. His attempts have been thwarted by rats who terrify him and who rapidly swarm and remove any valuable possessions held by recently buried corpses. When his financial situation becomes dire, he learns of a recently buried aristocrat and seeks to unearth him and his valuables but finds the rats have already dug an enormous hole and dragged the corpse underground. Crawling in after them, he encounters an enormous mother rat who chases him through their network of tunnels. And that was a big rat. He falls into a hole and lands in a subterranean temple dedicated to a tentacled eldritch god. Oh. He steals a talisman from a corpse, which animates and chases after him, demanding its return. Crawling back through the tunnels, he accidentally causes a cave-in that kills the mother rat and traps the corpse in debris. Climbing towards a light above that he thinks is the moon, he finds to his horror that it is merely the glint of a coffin lid's plaque from his lantern. Oh. Trapped inside and buried alive, he is sworn by rats, and later on, other grave robbers unearth its corpse, which emerges numerous rats. It's very, very disgusting. Very much so. Probably one of the most disgusting episodes. Yeah. But yeah, I'm not a ger- like a rat phobia type of guy, but if I was, I probably would never want to watch this episode because literally the amount of rats that he probably had to endure during yeah. this thing. Oh my God, so many. Yeah, it gave me the Descent vibes. Like that movie with the women who go spelunking. And yeah, and there was those creatures in there. Yeah, and it gave me. covering blood, yeah. It gave me really claustrophobic feelings, which always make me feel uncomfortable watching. Exactly. So I think this was a pretty good one. I mean, it seems to me like the first two stories have something similar going on. And it's that these main characters have financial troubles and they're they're desperately trying to make money in ways that are somewhat unconventional. But besides that, you know, they, they try their best. And I think it's because of their desperation to obtain large sums of money it leads them to making rash decisions that end up becoming their downfall Mm. essentially like with nick his eagerness to just get that fourth volume which broke the seal of that keeping that demon inside that circle Mm. is what led to his downfall and masan it was just the constant need of having money to not be in debt that led him to go after the body in the tunnels under the ground and end up how he came to be. Yeah. So I think all of that was really interesting. <laughs> this one was also relatively short. Yeah. Uh, I think this one was about like 48 minutes. Yep, I do remember that because everything else is like an hour or more. Yeah. But I think it was, this one was pretty good. What did you think? Well, it was good. It was definitely an interesting tale. Mm-hmm. And just them just going after the rat and, uh, well, not going after the rat, but going after the treasure and just this giant ass rat just pops out of nowhere, which was actually, I thought was a pretty good practical effect. Yeah. And I, that's another thing too. This one combined practical effects with CGI in like a really good way. And for me, I, again, you could definitely tell that Del Toro had a hand in some of these because when the animated corpse arises and goes after Masan. It really reminded me of this scene from Hellboy where they go to this old graveyard in Europe and they resurrect this skeleton. The way that that looked was similar to how this corpse looked in Graveyard Rats. Any final thoughts? Yeah, I thought it was was good. It was kind of a good learning lesson Mm -hmm. for the guy himself. I mean, 
to for everyone else not to be selfish like that to try to find things or trying to steal from people or else you're just going to have really bad karma like a bunch of rats to devour you right and i think both of them too both nick and masan they both have these moments of revelation in a way where it's like i have a chance to be a nice person so like with nick when he tries to get out of the storage unit and he's locked from the inside Mm-hmm. And he's trying to beg and plead with Amelia to let him out. But because he had already done her wrong in the beginning, no amount of begging and pleading can let her open up the door for him. Whereas Maison is already in a situation that he can't seem get to get out of. He seems hopeless. So he starts praying and pleading with God that if he gets out of there alive, he'll turn his life around and do better. But well, he's already gone yeah. so far in that there's no way he's going to be able to turn his life around even if he gets out. Yeah, so it didn't work out really the way that he wanted to. All right, so on a scale of one to eight, where would you rank this one? I'd do it at six. Put Graveyard Rats at six. I would probably put this at about a four, I would say. It was good, but for the most part, it I feel like there's parts where it could have been better. But what do you, I mean, obviously, that's where you put your ranking And we'll go over these as a whole at the end. All right. So number three is The Autopsy. It's directed by David Pryor, written by David S. Goyer, uh, based on a short short story by Michael Shea. Sheriff Nate Craven asks friend Dr. Carl Winters to perform autopsies on several minors who recently died when one of them, Joe Allen, caused an explosion while carrying a mysterious object. Winters has terminal cancer, but agrees to do so. As he records his autopsies, Alan's body reanimates, revealing that it is inhabited by an alien parasite. Alan encounters the parasite and unsuccessfully attempts to destroy it. It explains that its species have no sensory organs and use their hosts for pleasure and nourishment. It reveals them stimulating its host's senses to extremes and relishes keeping the host conscious but helpless as it consumes them from within. Sensing Winters' cancer, it subdues him and plans to parasitize him, using his cancer as a replenish. So I gotta say... Okay. That out of these, out of the two that we've read so far, or the ones I saw so far... I like this one a lot better. It definitely got better after a while. I'm not done. Oh, I thought you were actually done. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah, no, I'm not done, you chud. Anyway. I love that movie. It cuts itself out of Alan's body and temporarily <laughs> senselessness or senseless begins burrowing into Winters' body. Winters grabs the scalpel from the dying Alan and gouges out his eyes, puncturing his eardrums and writes a message on his chest in blood before cutting his throat. Inside their shared minds, Winters Winters reveals to the parasite that he has trapped it in its own now disabled dying body. The message on his chest instructs Craven to listen to the recordings, which has captured the entire conversation, and to burn his body and the parasite trapped within. Also, I forgot to do the casting, which I apologize, but it stars F. Murray Abraham Glenn Turman. Now I'm done. Now you can tell me your opinion, you chud. Oh, anyway. I love that movie. Anyway, so I like this definitely compared to the first two that we watched. And uh, I do love alien stuff, so I thought this was kind of perfect with the setting that it went into. It was just such a great movie. And it's such a great little episode itself. And the Doctor was smarter than the freaking alien. Yeah, it's always it's always so funny to me because, like, you know how, like, when you watch a movie that always has a villain, the yeah. villain begins to monologue. 
Yeah. Everything that it's about. Its strengths, its weaknesses, its plans, its missions, and all that stuff. Yeah. And by doing that, you just reveal in a short amount of time how this person is able to thwart you. Exactly. Which I find it hilarious. Mm-hmm. And he really did outsmart him. Like, the alien thought he had every duck in a row with this with this guy and thought he had the ultimate, like, like he was going to win. But he outsmarted him in every way, even when he didn't realize that he did outsmart him. Yeah. And that's what I love about it. And uh, this episode was definitely my favorite more than the other two. So mm-hmm. I will say if I have to put this one in a number, I would definitely put it number five. Okay. It's definitely in the top five for me. And I feel like after this, the mm-hmm. stories definitely got a little better. I would put this in number two. Yeah? Yeah. Nice. Okay. Yeah, because definitely after this, the stories were getting really good and better <clears> for <throat> me, honestly. Right. I, I enjoyed them. So, yeah. This next one. It's trippy as fuck. Very, very trippy. Oh, my God. This one's called The Outside. It was directed by Anna Lily Amirpour. I believe it's how you pronounce her last name. I apologize if it's incorrect. Written by Haley Z. Boston and based on a webcomic by Emily Carroll, which I did not know that. Yeah. And you know what's funny? It's like with this right here, like the characters, they had some pretty big names in this episode. Yeah. Yeah. Stars Katie Mikuchi, I believe is how you pronounce her last name. Is she the awkward one? Yeah. Oh, yeah. She was in uh, Big Bang Theory, Scrubs. Raising Hope. Oh, wait a minute. No, this is not the one that I thought. Oh, okay, never mind. What did you think it was? This one, I, I'm so dumb because this is the, the quirky episode. Because I remember the one that we were, I was actually thought we were talking about was the one with all those mines and like. Oh, no, that's the viewing. We'll get to that a Yeah, bit. that's later. Okay. This outside, mm-hmm. this is fucking disturbing. This is what scared. You know what? Just go. Yeah, Kate. Makuchi. I don't know if that's how you pronounce it. I apologize. I like her. I like her acting. Martin Starr and Dan Stevens. Who's from Freaks and Geeks and uh, Spider-Man and all that stuff. He's, yeah. He's the husband. I love his character, though. Dan Stevens? Yeah, the, the husband, right? No. Dan Stevens was the guy in the infomercial. Oh, that guy. That He's from the Beauty and the Beast. Yeah. Yes. But who's the other guy? Martin Starr was that's, Keith. I like Martin Starr. Anyway, we he's, love Keith in this one. Yeah, Keith poor, is poor the Keith. best. Stacy, a seemingly unattractive and awkward woman, longs to be beautiful like the women in her workplace. After being invited to her co-worker's Christmas party, Stacy is given a popular lotion called Aloe Glow, while her taxidermy secret Santa gift is poorly received. Yeah. Despondent, she tries the lotion, but finds that it gives her a rash. At home, her husband tries to reassure her that she is perfect just the way she is, to no avail as she expresses the loneliness she feels from being excluded. After mysteriously being contacted by the creator of the lotion through her TV, she agrees to buy more aloe glow. But her rash persists, and the lotion leaks from the bottles, forming a humanoid that Stacy embraces and kisses before it discorporates into her bathtub. When her husband tries to shake her from her obsession, she murders him, climbs into the lotion bath, and fully emerges... Finally beautiful. She taxidermies her husband and arrives to work, stunning her co-workers who invite her to join them. Having finally lost herself, Stacy revels in her co-workers' <coughs> atten- attention and new shallow social status. Thoughts? This is fucking horrifying. I, to, when we saw this, and after we were done, my face just, I was trembling. I was trembling because this is like, 
I didn't know this was because oh, it's such a quirky episode. Like every episode that we've seen always has like a different theme and different style. Mm. And you could tell with this, a lot of these actors have come from like quirky shows and quirkiness of their own. Like quirky. Yeah, a lot of them. A lot of the actors are quirky themselves. Like Martin Starr, who's from Freaks and Geeks. And and Katie, she's from from some of the sitcoms and like Big Bang Theory and DuckTales and stuff like that. And it just seems like that I never thought the quirkiness of their of their characters mixed with the very dark disturbingness mm. of like the horror that that was going on in this episode would actually kind of make me feel a little bit trembling. Yeah, and I mean it. It really plays on that lonely outsider kind of perspective where <coughs> the, the world has its standards of beauty. And in certain cultures, there's always a high standard of what is considered to be beautiful and appealing and alluring. Uh-huh. I think this plays on the, the fact that we as society really judge people based on their looks and their value on how they look and not who they are as people. Exactly. Because Keith, the husband, tells Stacy numerous times that he loves her for who she is. He loves that she does taxidermy. She, he loves that she likes watching cartoons and all this stuff. He doesn't care what she looks like. And it would be an enduring quality. But for Stacy, she's just like, well, it doesn't matter what you think. I don't like the way I look. I don't like the way I feel about myself. And I want to change myself to make myself happy. Which is, again... Another thing that a lot of people are coming to terms with nowadays is like when women put on makeup, we're not doing it for other people. We're doing it for ourselves. Yeah. That's it's pretty much how this whole story is. Yeah. And it plays the whole commercial scenes play on Stacy's fear of being outcasted, which she, she generally already is. But she keeps putting on these lotions that she knows doesn't make her feel better. They only make her body feel worse. It's weird. She shouldn't have kept doing it. But for some reason, Mm -hmm. in the long run of it, as this thing transforms itself, it starts helping her in the very, very end of it. Which I didn't even think it was going to at all. But then in the very end, as she comes out of it, she becomes this whole different person looking. She didn't look like the way she did. It's very odd. I almost thought in a way that it was going to be like alien based again like the last one yeah because something about the way that they made this product seem like it, how it was working dan stevens plays the guy in the infomercials who talks to stacy through her tv and continues to encourage her to use the product he explains that the way the product works is that it's absorbing into your skin it's working its magic underneath the skin and like it's slowly, growing yeah. yeah like it's growing and it's vibrant and all this stuff and it's like it made it seem like at some point some like weird alien like bugs were gonna come crawling out of our skin i don't know it's just something the way that they made it seem was almost alien like which i still find this show just this episode disturbing and literally that's why i would give this eight okay i'm putting this at number eight i forgot about this episode and i'm so glad i saved it for that (laughs) I'm going to put it at seven. I mean, I get the message. I get the whole purpose of it. I I got very confused along the way. But, I mean, for the most part, it kind of just laid itself out typically how it does. So, you want to go on to the next one? Yes, which I love this one. It's definitely, definitely a big, big one for me. I love this. All right. Number five is called Pikmin's Model. Directed by Keith Thomas, written by Lee Patterson, based on a short story by H.P. Lovecraft. Fuck yeah. 
stars Ben Barnes, Crispin Glover, and Oriana Lehman. Yeah. Art student Will Thurber becomes friends with Rich, Richard Pickman, whose horrific works of art depicting demons and gruesome scenes memorize him. Years later, Thurber, now a museum curator, remains enthralled but disturbed by Pickman's works, suffering horrific dreams. Pickman, now a successful artist, drops in to visit, interacting with his wife Rebecca and young son James. When James also begins having terrifying dreams after seeing Pickman's work, Thurber confronts Pickman. Pickman begs him to come to his home and see his works, explaining that he only ever wanted for the works to be seen. Thurber lights the works on fire and accidentally shoots Pickman, who reveals that the works were not based on imagination, but real life and scenes of the future. A demon depicted in one of the paintings emerges and drags Pigman's corpse away. The next day, Thurber is horrified to find that his museum displaying Pigman's works completely undamaged and that James and Rebecca have viewed them. He sends the two home and orders the paintings destroyed. Returning home, he begins to talk to Rebecca, promising that he will try to be a better husband, but discovers that the paintings have driven Rebecca mad. She has gouged out her eyes and has butchered and cooked their son, just as depicted in one of Pickman's paintings. So, me watching this episode, I mean, I didn't realize how demonic it was going to be as it was starting to go into the episode. And just the paintings mm-hmm. itself are beautiful. I don't know. There was just something about me always liking weird, satanic, well, like demonic-looking pictures. Mm-hmm. And these ones right here had some of the best paintings. Especially yeah. that giant boar-looking thing that they had. And You know what I'm <clears> talking about? You like, mean the monster? Yeah, that giant, giant buffalo-looking um, monster. It's got like big horns, and it was like, like devouring people. It was big. Uh, okay. Never mind. You don't understand. So, but watching it, it was just the acting of it is perfect, and a lot of oh my god, it was just. I'm so glad I don't have dreams like that because seriously, those are some fucking terrifying dreams, and. Um, and Crispin Glover, I love his acting. So just him kind of like coming back, especially in this, was just perfect. Mm-hmm. You know, and I feel like out of all these episodes, this was definitely my best favorite. I love how everything just goes tragically wrong within the end. Right. And it's just like... So you would put this one at number one? I would put it number one for me. Okay. Which is funny. Out of all of them, I chose this mm-hmm. one. And actually, and this is a perfect H.P. Lovecraft story. Like, seriously, this is definitely uh, H.P. written all over it. I put this one at number five. (laughs) Yeah. I put this one at number five only because it was good. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm an artsy person. I like to draw and paint a lot. So I kind of definitely get where this story is coming from. And I was going to say that, too. I love art as well because my mom's an artist. She's always been a painter and drawler. Yeah. And the, the thing about art, And in in this story specifically, like when we see a young Will Thurber and Pickman go to these art classes, the artist or the instructor always says, you know, draw what you see, right? Mm -hmm. So everybody draws essentially what they see. They look at the model and they try to capture the likeness of the model. Pickman draws the model in a very grotesque and decompositioned way. Mm Mm-hmm. Like the body is rotting, the tissue is molding, and it's very grotesque. So he's seeing the body that's 
already dying, furthering, decaying past life, which is very interesting in a way. So I think that in and of itself is a very <coughs> unique style of drawing. But yeah, I would put this at a five. I mean, I it's definitely interesting. But at the same time, it's the fact that like, <clears throat> it's playing on this notion that this man's artwork is now affecting this other man who was a seemingly sound of mind person and leading him down a path of madness and hopelessness. It's it's a very odd way of telling the story. You know what I mean? Exactly. I think it's a very odd story. But I love it though. I love it because it was incredibly odd. And mm-hmm. it was just horrifying as hell. And the woman... That was in it, especially in the paintings where she just looked manic. Mm-hmm. Yep. Oh my god, it was just, it was excellent. I loved every minute of it. So we should go on the next one? Yep, the next one is Dreams in the Witch House. It was directed <laughs> by Catherine Hardwick, written by Mika Watkins, based on a short story by H.P. Lovecraft. Mm-hmm. It stars Rupert Grint, Ismail Cruz Cordova, DJ Qualls, Nia Vardalas, that's the woman that we've been seeing a lot lately when we were sick. Yeah. She yeah. was in my big fat Greek wedding one oh, yeah, two yeah. Her, 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 and her, my yeah. life in ruins. She's a big influence in our sickness. Tanika Davis and Gabby Marino. Walter Gilman witnesses his twin sister Epperly's spirit being dragged away upon her death to the forest of lost souls. Years later, as a grown man, he seeks to enter the location in hopes of saving her. He rents a room in the house of an executed witch, Kasaya Mason, and takes an indigenous drug designed to take him to the forest. (coughs) After several attempts, he locates his sister and even finds that he is able to bring a piece of her dress into the real world with him. His attempts gain the attention of the spirit of Kasaya and a familiar, a human-faced rat named Jenkins Brown. When Walter successfully brings Epperly back, they learn that Keziah and Jenkins have also come back, and that Walter must die before dawn in order to bring one of them back permanently. Keziah attempts to kill Walter, but Epperly kills her and peacefully passes away herself. However, Jenkins, taking advantage of the situation, and burrows into Walter's body, bursting forth and killing him before dawn, then possesses Walter's body triumphant. What did you think? It's pretty pretty good, actually. I don't know. There's always something about H.P. Lovecraft stories I love. But definitely with this one, it was definitely a really, really good story, especially with Rupert, who's from uh, Harry Potter, and he's in this. Yeah. Um, I always felt like he would have a big future, a big bright future in movies and stuff, but... He's not in too many big, big ones as like his other co-stars that were in the other Harry in the Harry Potter films. But you know, but I think that's okay because he did great in this one. He did very good. Where would you put this on your scale? Um, I would put this number two. Dreams in the Witch House is number two for Colin. Yeah, but I feel like this was definitely a good one too, especially where he was trying to find his sister. And it's kind of cool that he found kind of like a loophole to go over there. I'm having a hard time figuring out where to put this one. So far I have opened our, my number one, my six, and my eight. This one was not my favorite. Honestly, I get it. I kind of get it. My thing was, okay, this is a story about ghosts. And not just ghosts, but the existence that ghosts are proving the existence of ghosts and the afterlife. Because when we see Walter, like, after the beginning of the story of him witnessing his sister's death, 
watching her spirit get dragged away into the forest of lost souls, we cut to an older Walter who's now attending a seance conducted by a self-proclaimed medium who's played by Nia Verdalis, only to find out backstage that she is a fake. She's mm-hmm. not a real psychic medium yeah. and that all that she put on was just a facade. Yeah. Which, you know, disheartens him. Makes him feel, like, dis-triumphant of the whole situation. Because all he wants to do is prove that this place exists. He can go find and help his sister. Because he still believes that she and her soul are still in danger in the afterlife. Mm-hmm. I get it. But it wasn't my favorite. I didn't particularly... I don't know. Something about it just doesn't seem... I get it. I do. It didn't really strike you. It didn't really in a way. Because it was like... Okay, you witnessed your sister's death when you were a child. Now you spend your entire adult career proving the existence <laughs> of life after death. Going to all these mediums, going to all these seances, going to all these people. Only to be told time and time again that it's not real, never was real. And yet you spend your entire life making no money dedicated to a society that's whole existence is to prove that ghosts, ghosts exist. Oh, I don't know, it's just something about it. Just didn't really like it. I get it. I yeah, because, I mean, they lost me after he ran into those indigenous men who were talking about, you know, crossing dimensions and not causing ripples in the dimensions. And But he did. Going into the forest. And he, like, he overhears this. And he's like, what are you guys talking about? And he's telling them, like, oh, well, we have this drug that allows us to cross dimensions. And it's like, well, who's to say this drug isn't just, like, a hallucinogen which is what his friend is keeps trying to tell him it's like you're taking these drugs not knowing if they're actually real yeah and he's not going to take them with you because everybody has different effects on different drugs exactly so it's not probably not going to work for everybody the same way mm-hmm. and then you go and you stay in this boarding house that once used to belong to a witch who which, was who would rent it out to anyone honestly i don't know but that's like where they kind of <laughs> lost me even more yeah it's like, okay Okay, so you're already putting yourself in a weirder position. Now let's throw it even weirder. You have the direction. wish spirit actually coming in there and stuff, and yeah, it just seems weird. Yeah, but Doesn't I did. Make... But I did like the weirdness of it. I liked the effects that they did, especially for the witch and stuff. The effects were good. The rat was fucking weird. The rat was an interesting touch. Probably not one I would have favored, but yeah, I would definitely put this on number six. Then. Hmm. I mean, it's not my favorite, but it's not the best. Yeah. And don't get me wrong. My opinions are that alone. They're just opinions. <laughs> They're not right. They're not wrong. Other people, like Colin, might put them at a higher ranking than mine, but that's just me. Is there anything else you wanted to add before you... Nah, I think we should go on the next one. All right. The viewing. That was the one that you also liked, right? Oh, yeah. I liked that one a lot. That was, a, right. that was definitely good. This one... Oh, <laughs> sorry. Okay? My voice keeps rasping very hard lately. So, like, sometimes I'll start a sentence and it'll be so hoarse and soft that people are like, <laughs> what'd you say? Oh, my poor babe. Anyway, this one's called The Viewing. It's directed by Panos Cosmatos. Cosmatos? <sighs> and it was written by Panos and Aaron Stewart on. Did I say any of that correctly? I think so. Okay. You're fine. It stars Peter Weller. Eric Andre, Sophia Butella, Charlene or Charlene Yee, Steve Aggie, Michael Thurialt, Thurialt, 
and Saad Sidquil, Sidqui. I'm so sorry if I mispronounce these names. I'm not good with names at all. Wealthy recluse Lionel Lassiter invites sublime musician Randall Rolfe, physicist Charlotte Yee, who studies extra, extraterrestrial life, best-selling author Guy Landon, and purported psychic Targ Reinhard to his home for a special viewing, intended to help them all expand their consciousness. Flanked by his physician, Dr. Zara, he encourages them all to take several drugs to place them on the same wavelength. He takes them to a secret room containing the otherworldly meteor. The meteor reacts to their collective presence and they fall into a trance. The meteor cracks open and an oozing entity emerges. The power emanating from the being melts Targ's face and Zara's body, exploding Landon's head and causes Z and Roth to flee for their lives. The entity melts down and possesses Lassiter's body, stalking the grounds of his home and killing his guard with electricity. Z and Roth flee by car, stopping eventually to question what occurred before them. Meanwhile, the entity, now merged with Lassiter into a grisly form, enters the sewers, disrupting the electricity of the city in its uncontrolled aura. What do you think? Well, this one was definitely super, super interesting. Mm-hmm. Just with uh, the meaning of the minds with all those people and kind of like explaining about themselves mm-hmm. and what they do and why they're there and... Just this billionaire guy just was showering them with all these gifts and shit and just giving them, like, the best cocaine or just, like, having them try, like, weed and doing all this stuff. It was really weird why he had them there. Well, they're supposed to be, like, the top minds of their field. Yeah. I guess. Like, of the world. Yeah. Well, not of the world. In their field. Because keep in mind, one of them's a musician, the other one's a psychic. Mm-hmm. So it's not like they were... They're just the top minds in their field. Where would you put this on your scale? Um, Probably put it in number three. The viewing? Yeah. I I definitely enjoy what they did for this. Especially mm-hmm. when they got to see the meteor. And I, I really didn't think this was going to be scary at all until the meteor showed up. So mm-hmm. when I saw the meteor and what it did to the people, especially melt some of them, holy shit. Yeah, I, I don't really have like a whole lot... To give about this one. I mean, because like you said, it didn't mm-hmm. get scary un- until the final act of yeah. the story. This was definitely like a slow build-up one. <clears throat> right. That took forever just for it to get scary. Yeah. So I would put this at number eight mm-hmm. for me. I don't know. Like some parts of the interactions were pretty interesting. Some of them weren't. And I feel like there's a lot of vagueness in not only why he selected them, but just in his whole demeanor himself and his whole house. They kept asking, like, why Why did you pick us? Like, why are we here? How do you make your money? How are you able to afford this house? What is it that you're here to show us? And, you know, there's so many questions, but they don't fully get addressed or answered. Exactly. So it's like, there's mm. so much layer of <laughs> mysteriousness to a story that I can deal with before I decide, you know, decide to give up and on it and be like, Alright, well, if I'm never going to find out what's going on here, then I might as well just stop now before I get too invested into this and then I just totally lose interest altogether. Exactly. That's kind of like how I felt like with the last one. Yeah. Yeah. And then, like, the thing with, like, the drugs and stuff, because this is, like, 
The last story. Mm. There's a drug involved that puts you at a certain wavelength. You know, where you re- where you reach a state of either consciousness or higher level. Or in the last story, you take a drug, it takes you to another dimension. That kind of weird shit. I feel like there's certain stories where drugs don't need to be involved. Yeah. And this was one of them. Like, mm. you bring people here because of, they're the supposedly the top minds of their field. And you brought them here to show them a space rock, right? Yeah. Nothing special about the space rock, just that you've found it, you've done a bunch of testings on it, you don't know what's in the rock, right? Mm. You all take this experimental drug, and you all go look at the rock, and then for some fucking reason, the rock finally decides to crack open and this weird, oozing, gelatinous form comes out. Yeah. And it melts people's faces, it causes heads to explode. Like, what the fuck was all that even about? Like, none of that part even made any sense. Really but, didn't. And that's where they lose me, yeah. you know? Because I'm like, okay, this is just way too out there for me to really get my head around. But yeah, I, I put that at number eight. It's not my favorite. But I thought it was interesting, especially for what it represented. Yeah. Yeah. But the drug part for me, I wouldn't like either. So we go to the last one, which this one was actually kind of interesting because the woman who did this one, she's actually the director of The Babadook. And the woman Mm -hmm. who starred in it, she starred in The Babadook too as the mother. I will get there when I get there. Can I start, please? I just think it's interesting. That's why I wanted to mention it first. So suck it. Number eight is The Murmuring, and it's directed by Jennifer Kent, as Colin mentioned, also directed The Babadook. Written based on a short story by Guillermo del Toro and Jennifer Kent. Stars Essie Davis, who also starred in The Babadook. Thank you, Colin. You're welcome. Andrew Lincoln and Hannah Galway. Nancy and Edgar Bradley are ornithologists studying bird murmurations and who recently lost their daughter, Ava. They don't explain how they lose her. They don't explain what happened. They Mm. just... And they don't even explain how old Ava really was. We do get a glimpse of her in like a flashback or in like a vision that Nancy has of her as as a baby. But I'm not quite sure if that's like their actual age. But I digress. They go Mm. to a remote country home to continue their studies and get away from their grief. Nancy begins seeing ghostly apparitions of a crying boy and a screaming angry woman. Edgar believes these visions are from the strain of her grief, which Nancy's kept inside all throughout. Nancy learns that the former owner, Claudette, drowned her son and committed suicide. During a fight over these visions, Edgar expresses frustration over Nancy, never crying following Ava's death, nor wishing to talk about it and his hopelessness over their strained relationship. Despondent, he leaves for his research site the next morning. Alone in the house, Nancy is chased by Claudette's screaming ghost and hears her crying son that his mother is angry with him. Comforting him, Nancy encourages him to run into her arms. He does, finally passing on. Nancy then witnesses Claudette committing suicide, realizing that her angry screams were in despair over her drowning her son. Claudette's spirit is carried by an enormous bird murmuration, which envelopes Nancy, allowing her to finally cry, confront her grief. She contacts a relieved Edgar, saying that she is finally ready to talk about Ava. I thought this one was actually well put together. It was definitely incredibly sad. Yeah. I will say. Well, because like the Babadook, it's all about grief. It's all about the process of grieving and mourning a loss. That's why I definitely felt Babadook vibes when I watched it. Right. 
Yeah. So, you know, because everybody grieves differently in their own way. And then there, there was more types of grief other than just losing a child here, right? Because another type of grief that we kind of learn a little bit about Claudette was that her son is actually the son of a man she had an affair with because she was never married. She came from a very wealthy, well-to-do family. And when she started having this affair and she got pregnant, the family decided to put her her son up in this house just to kind of close her off from the rest of society so that people wouldn't know of their shame. Gotcha. So that in of itself is like a loss. She's lost the love of her life. She's lost her family. She's lost... She basically lost everything. Yeah. And then out of anger and despair over a situation, she kills her son in the process. And then out of anger and despair at herself for doing so, she kills herself. So there's so many layers of grief to this. And it's very, very interesting because... When we watch as Nancy unfolds this whole story about these people, she starts to grieve for them too in a way. She's like, I feel bad for the mother. I know how she feels. Because she gets asked at one point, why is it that you study birds? And she says that she admires their freedom. The ability to be able to fly and go wherever you want to go. That's that's why she does what she does. And she comes to find out that Claudette was also watching the birds and also felt that same kindredship in them the ability to fly away wherever you want to go and the freedom to do so so i think that's very interesting that there's like a parallel there between the two well i mean it was a great is a good story you know it's incredibly sad but other than that yes it was i enjoyed it on my list i put it at number one because i mean it's the only one left mm. i kind of like out of all the others when i put them in order from mm. best to worst Remembering is number one for me. Where you have number four left, mm-hmm. so just put it four. But do you agree with it? Yeah, I do. I liked it better than some of the other ones, that's for sure. But for me, I will find this one as the saddest of all the all the stories on this thing. And I do feel bad for Edgar, you know, because obviously the loss of a child can have a strain on a person's marriage and relationships. Mm-hmm. And we see it a lot in this story where Edgar tries to be mm-hmm. more affectionate or more romantic with Nancy. And she's just not having it. She's like, I'm not in the mood for it. I'm just too tired. I just don't want to do this right now. And again, we never know why or how Ava died. It's never really admitted who was to blame here or if there's any blame at all. But obviously it hits Nancy pretty hard. And because of that, it puts a strain on her Marriage with Edgar. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. What do you think about the whole series overall? I like the whole series. Well, I mean, I like the series for the most part. It was definitely interesting. It's not my most favorite anthology, but it's definitely up there with especially stories and how they're telling them and stuff like that. I definitely appreciate this one. Mm-hmm. And I think Garamal definitely lives up to his reputation of being a... A horror, a horror guy, you know. You mean Guillermo? Guillermo. What did I say? But yes, no, Guillermo. 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 Caramel. <laughs> I said Guillermo. No. <coughs> Guillermo is definitely really good. I, I love his work, so. I thought this was an interesting series. I thought some of the stories were, some of them were different, but some of them have similar parallels from each other. Like, when you break it down two by two, it seems like there's a connection to each of them in terms of similar themes and tropes and stuff. And I thought they were all really interesting in their own way. Obviously, I liked some more than others. But if I had to change it, honestly, 
I probably would switch two of them. I would switch where lot 36 is with the murmuring. Really? Only because, and it has nothing to do with the fact that it was the first story to be told in the series. It's just the fact that in a short amount of time, you told a pretty compelling story that that had happened. And I, I guess the way that it was shot, the way it was put together, the way it was told... It had like a fluid, a fluidity about it that I enjoyed. And it was straight to the point. It didn't beat around the bush. There was not a lot of metaphors or <coughs> dialogue or monologuing. Like you just had straight to the point. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. And along the way, like you pepper in some instances that we learn a little bit more about the characters, but nothing too out there. You know what I mean? Yeah. I thought that was all really interesting. Let's go through a recap of our list, our rankings here. Mm. All right, so for me, number one would be Lot 36. Number two would be The Autopsy. Number three would be The Murmuring. Number four would be Graveyard Rats. Number five is Pikmin's Model. Number six is Dreams in the Witch House. Number seven is The Outside. And number eight is The Viewing. Mine is number one, Pikmin's Model. Number number two, Dreams in the Witch House. Number three, The Viewing. Number four, The Murmuring. Number five, The Autopsy. Number six, Graveyard Rats. Number seven, Lot 36. And number eight, The Outside. And honestly... Are you okay with those answers? Or would you switch something around? I would probably switch something around. Oh, which one? Um, I would switch... Man, I can't believe I'm doing this, but uh, I would switch Graveyard Rats with the Murmuring. So number four would be Graveyard Rats, and number six would be the Murmuring. Yes, honestly, because mm-hmm. the Murmuring was definitely up there with my least favorites. Okay. And Graveyard Rats, I even though it was definitely in my least, I preferred that story over the Murmuring. Okay. So yeah, especially with... The big old creature rats and everything, which seem intriguing. Yeah. So, yeah. <coughs> so, that's how I do my countdown. So, other than that, you think we're good? Yeah, I think we covered everything we could. Yeah, given I think our, we did. Given our current situations and our state of well-being. Yeah, basically how we feel like shit right now. Yeah, because I forgot how hard it is to do a podcast when your voice is all raspy and nasally and congested yeah but aren't you glad we did this so we can get one in there i mean i'm glad we were able to at least squeeze one in because with the end of the year coming this means the end of a season for us as we've done for the past few years every year we start a season for the podcast so i think let me see one two three we have three weeks left of podcasting before the end of the year starting what the first or or the week after (coughs) yeah probably so starting in January, we'll open up this podcast with a new season, hopefully with more stuff. We'll try to stick to a more regular schedule of programming for everybody. But this year has been pretty good, I would say. When What do you think? I think this year has gone very good myself. Um, excuse me. Just with us trying to come up with new content, you know, sometimes it's hard. But I think we do everything for the most part the best we can to mm-hmm. come up with what's in our imagination and, you know, Kind of think of what's the best kind of topics to talk about. And I feel like we definitely have done that. And I enjoy every minute of it. So Yeah. Yeah, so 
But I'm glad that everyone can listen to us today, and I hope you enjoy the episode because we'll try to we'll definitely come out with a couple more episodes before the year is up. Because mm-hmm. like she said, we got three more weeks, so we got some materials that we could definitely do. But other than that, thank you all for listening. I hope you enjoy our episode here today. Yeah. Other than that, this has been an episode mm-hmm. of the Effie Normal Podcast. I feel like shit. And I'm dying. Signing off saying goodbye.